The following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Welcome, welcome all to No Police Radio here on KDVS 90.3 FM. You can hear us every other week discussing all things abolition, from tuition to the prison industrial complex. Everything that has to go to make way for a free university. We'll feature conversations with guest organizers, abolitionist scholars, and people who have taken part in the university's radical history, all with an eye towards how we get free. And I just wanna say before we begin, I would like to mention that if you are listening at home with nothing to do, commuting over the causeway, or want a reason to go to Sacramento in the next half hour, local Palestinian activist groups, Jewish Voices for Peace, and other related organizations are sponsoring a counter event to Governor Newsom's tree lighting ceremony. Folks are meeting at 4.30, which is right now, at 1020 11th Street in Sacramento and going to the ceremony together where they will be showing Governor Newsom that there should be no celebration while remaining silent on genocide. Again, that's happening right now at 1020 11th Street in Sacramento if you're interested. And now for today's programming, we're going to be talking about policing and borders and how those things are related. I am Local Bag and I'm here with my co-host. Hey, this is Virgil. Usually I try to get all hyped up for this show and be super energetic and be like, hey, bottom of the hour. And I gotta say it's week 10, mm. it's mid-December, it's late in history and I'm leaning way back in my chair. How are you <laughs> doing today, Local Bag? I am doing all right. I had like the worst headache this morning biking over to campus, so um, but yeah, I think that was probably because I did not drink enough water. So I did drink a large amount of water um, and I have been continuously drinking water throughout the day. But again, it, it is week 10. Um, I am a student and it's, you know, it's, it's grind mode. I think um, the break week, the holiday break that we get um, at the end of November really is a tease because they allow you to rest for like five days or so. And then they're like, okay, week 10 uh, finals and end of the quarter and you got to get you have to get your cortisol levels back up after allowing them to rest a little bit i'm glad you're staying hydrated in these <laughs> difficult times that's oh, yes. all i really want to say i should also mention uh, local bag has given some advice if you are or or advisories or suggestions if you're looking to get into something right now uh there's that that event mm -hmm. happening over in sacramento if you're pretty happy where you are right now, maybe you're leaning way back in your chair too, <laughs> listening to No Police Radio, but are wondering, what am I gonna do when uh, the show ends? Well, here's a thought. Nope. Uh, once the show ends, uh, the UC Davis graduate medical, veterinary, and law students for justice in Palestine, uh, you can join them for the second installment of their teaching series called Palestine Now. Teaching part two, Israeli genocide, history, and the law. Uh, the panelists include George Bisharat from UC Law, San Francisco, Amer he's, an Amer he's an emeritus professor uh, of law and anthropology and Middle East studies, and Raz Segal, uh, who's a Stockton University associate professor of Holocaust and genocide studies. That is happening at 6.30, so you can enjoy the show, uh, hydrate a little bit, yes. and uh, hop on to Zoom. It's a Zoom event. It's always a little bit hard giving Earls over the air. True. But here it's you can hit it up at bit.ly that's b-i-t dot l-y the usual bit.ly bit.ly slash pal teach two bit.ly slash pal teach two and uh you can be on zoom and and take part uh, or learn from or engage with that event 
I have a question, Virgil. Do you have to have a UC Davis email address to join the Zoom? That is a super good address, a uh, super good question. Mm -hmm. I do not have an answer uh, given the information I have in front of me. Do you happen to know the answer? I do not. I guess we can, we can probably find out in the next music break. <laughs> maybe, maybe someone will call in and tell us. Yes. Uh, but um, I think the last one of these you did. Okay. So, if, so I think teaching part one, you did have to have a UC Davis address to, mm, but but definitely a lot of people were like, well, we'd like to open it up and, and broaden it right. out. Uh, so maybe not this time. Yeah, I guess we can definitely see. Um, but yeah. <coughs> yeah, all right. Let's see. Well, is there anything else we want to mention today or should we jump into the music break before... Message because we love our listeners. Thank yes. you. Saying you do not have to have a UC Davis address to be part of that show. Perfect. So so yeah, get on it. Uh, Bit.ly slash palteach2. Any yes, email address will work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, but yeah, that's two two possible things that you can take part of. One right now, um, which would require possibly switching off no police radio unfortunately um and then one after which doesn't require switching off no police radio and kdbs 90.3 fm um but yeah going back to what we're going to be talking about today as i mentioned policing and borders um there's a couple different there's like a lot of different contexts um, and lenses in which we can look at this um but many could say that policing is always about borders and borders are always about policing. Um, so we can talk about, for example, who was allowed in and out of Israel, um, when you can and cannot leave Gaza, who gets to use what roads or gates to cross a border and who doesn't, all as stories of policing in particular, policing citizenship, policing social inclusion, policing open, open air prisons and policing social death. Um, do you want to continue on other ways that we can? Yeah, this is something I've had occasion to reflect on a lot of my life. And when I was quite young, of course, I didn't know much about the police except for the things, you know, you learn in, in kids' books. And I remember one of the first lessons I had was uh, my mom's boyfriend. Mm -hmm. They didn't really have the language of, like, partner back then and whatnot. Right. Anyway, my mom's boyfriend was like, you ever notice how police stand at the borders of neighborhoods? And I was like, no, not really. Uh, and he said, yeah, and what's interesting is they don't just stand there to, you know, keep out the bad people. And he was clearly using bad in air quotes. He was, he was a pretty, down, pretty right. down gentleman. He was like, they don't just stand there facing outward to keep out the bad folks. They face inward at the nice neighborhoods, making sure the fancy rich people know that they're about to leave their right. neighborhood and about to enter states of risk. And, and making sure that they're aware of that and keeping them in, and, and sort of providing this, this, you know, mini security state that's not a nation, but it's just a, a neighborhood. So even when we're not talking about national borders, police are always to be found at the borders, uh, making sure that the right people go to the right places according to the police and the state and capital and all those, all those powers. And, you know, one of the ways we see this really dramatically in the Bay Area, where I know that, that uh, some of us in this uh, studio and some of us listening right now are, uh, identify with us as a home has experienced this really dramatic polarization where San Francisco is filled with you know, infinitely wealthy tech bros right. and <laughs> who I think would be happy to never have to see a poor person again. You read this all the time and they're, like, they're annoying, annoyed complaints about having to step over unhoused people to get home right. and open air drug markets and all that nonsense they talk right. about, right? Um, 
But of course, they can't live in a world where they never have to see another poor person because they require services that humans provide, whether that's, you know, pizza delivery or a massage right. or someone to clean their house. So there's this sort of social requirement that the ultra wealthy and the immigrated underclass live fairly near to each other for this exact like, sort of service provision thing. Mm. And that's where the cops come in. Right? Mm. What the cops do is make sure that that border doesn't get too porous, that people right. comport themse themselves correctly. And so all the time you get rich neighborhoods and periodically, you know, the police just shoot to yeah, some poor person mm -hmm. because they're like, well, you're not supposed to be in this neighborhood. We identified you as a problem. Right. Sorry. And I could name numerous cases. I'm thinking particularly of the police murder of Alejandro Nieto mm -hmm. in Bernal Heights uh, Park in 2014. But there's yeah. lots of episodes where this happens. Yeah, absolutely. Because the bourgeois class cannot exist without um, without poor people to exploit. And, and the police that. exist to manage that relationship. Right? Exactly. That's, that's what they do. Exactly, yeah. Um, the amount of times I've heard a bunch of lots of well-meaning people sometimes just complaining about the quote-unquote tenderloin <sighs> and that, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area in general is a beautiful, beautiful place um, filled with beautiful people, um, especially in parts where it is more diverse. Um, that's where you get the best food yeah. and the best interactions and the yeah. best community. And yeah, I was, I was born born in a hospital that no longer exists in San Francisco, so I identify mm -hmm. with it pretty strongly and I really don't care to hear these tech bros talk about oh it or God, treat yeah. it the way that they do. It's, it's hard right. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Um, all right, do, should we jump into a music break before we welcome our very special guest? Uh, we do have a very special guest and we will of course give that, that guest full fanfare and introduction, but we should mention that we're going to talk about uh, with them maybe the best known or most official version of border policing, which is border policing. I don't right. the actual um, uh, official law f f forces of law that patrol the border, particularly of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're getting classic after yes. the break, and we will introduce our guest then. But right now, Local Bag, give us some music to take us to that break. Absolutely. My pleasure. She might get shot She read books because they told her that's what should be read Now watch her wear Glasses fed fine I need now Tomorrow, what she did today. Scary way of spending time. 
Fridays for Future is a global movement of school strikers calling for urgent action on climate change. Every Friday, school children across the world strike from school for their futures, calling for leaders to unite behind the science, follow with the Paris Agreement, and keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. For more information, go to fridaysforfuture.org. All right, this, whoops, I was very quiet. The song that we just listened to was She Might Get Shot by Juan Walters. Um, he is a Uruguayan-born singer-songwriter um, who immigrated to Queens. Um, Queens or, no, Jackson Heights. I'm not sure the proximity of those two neighborhoods. I've never been to New York. Jackson Heights is part of Queens. Oh, okay, perfect. Um, so yeah, immigrated there. Um, born and ra or raised in New York um, at a pretty young age. And they are part of the um, Queens-based um, band, The Beats. And um, they also, you know, release their own music under their name, Juan Walters. Um, uh, it's very like folky and has, you know, very interesting shades of realism that reflect um, different, uh, different, I don't know, aspects of his daily life. So if you would like to check them out, um, the name is Juan Walters, and the song we just listened to is She Might Get Shot. Do you want to go with the introduction, Virgil? I have the honor of introducing our guest today. It's, uh, it's, I'm almost tempted to leap out of my laid-back week 10 vibe because I'm so <laughs> excited about our guest, but I'm going to keep it mellow. Mm -hmm. We're very fortunate to have with us on air today Wendy Trevino. There's many things I could say about Wendy, one of my favorite people, uh, but I'm going to limit it to just a few um, you know, Wendy is a public intellectual, a political actor. I never, I tend to shy away from terms like organizer and activist, but, uh, you know, Wendy is a serious political actor and political thinker who's been involved in, in various social movements. Wendy is also an Aggie, holding a, de holding a degree from here at UC Davis. Uh, I think from far enough back to when I had my previous radio show, show here at KDVS, uh, back back in those times. And Wendy's also a poet, and we're gonna talk about that uh, a little bit. Uh, Wendy has a, a, a chapbook called Brazilian is Not a Race, and then a full-length book called Cruel Fiction, and, and that's published by Commune Editions. I'm gonna give you information because the book very happily is available for free. An entire poetry book anyone can download. I'm gonna mention it now. I'll try and remember to mention it again at the end. If you go to communeditions, all one word, dot com, you'll be on the Commune Editions page. And then in the upper right-hand corner, there's a button that says, get it. 
And from there, you can probably handle things. You hit get it, it's gonna ask you for full length, you know, choose full length books. You're gonna see a bunch of book icons. You're gonna see Wendy's book. You can click on it and you can just download that PDF. It's yours as well as all the other books there, but it's Wendy we're talking with today. Wendy, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm doing pretty well. It's nice to be on this show. Um, really lovely to have some connection back to uh, UC Davis. And um, Joshua Clover was my advisor back then. Um, we became friends later, but uh, this is a cool like kind of reunion in this space. Uh, we're so glad to have you back, at least virtually speaking, over the over the waves and uh, the airwaves. And I can't resist starting with a poetry question. Uh, this is not a poetry show, in case our listeners have suddenly got concerned that, <laughs> that their beloved No Police Radio has gone literary. Not so much, but of course these things do meet. You might say there's a, wait for it, border at which <laughs> poetry and uh, the police meet uh, or think about each other. So I'm gonna start with a poetry question. You know, as we mentioned in the intro, you have a highly regarded book of poetry that's titled Cruel Fiction. And that turns out to be a phrase from the opening of one of the book's sonnets. I'm just gonna read the first three lines. A border like a race, or sorry, like race is a cruel fiction maintained by constant policing, violence, always threatening a new map. So it turns out even the, the title of your book refers us back to borders and, and policing making you clearly the perfect guest for today's show. <laughs> so can you talk us through how that came to be, not just an interest or concern for you, but a theme, borders and policing, significant enough for you to use it uh, sort of as part of your book's title? Sure, yeah, it's, um, it was, and it's still kind of in process, um, me figuring out that very question like why, you know, what is it about this, uh, that phrase, I guess, or cruel fiction um, that I'm trying to get at in that book. And just like when I talk about borders in general and thinking about how fiction works um, in terms of things like nation building, uh, you know, things like racialization, like there are these, these um, categories that we tend to live according to they you know it's, it's order um and what's i guess my primary like way of moving about the world even though i manage to do things is i'm often disoriented and like kind of feeling like this can't be real like things that are happening can't be real because they're so awful you know um and they also like when you look at the history of them you know, they were imposed, like they, they, they're not naturally existing things. Um, and in that sense, like there are all these fictions, <laughs> but they have the capacity to become very real and to like govern our life. Um, and I, I'm obsessed with those kinds of things. And definitely growing up at the US-Mexico border played a huge role in that. And just like the, a kind of nonsensical thing that exists if you live in that area for a lot of people and it did for me you know is i don't you know i didn't know until after i wrote that book and my parents were just talking to me about it that my grandma wasn't technically like a u.s citizen uh you know she was born in mexico um and i i mean honestly i don't know if she ever became a u.s citizen i'm not sure and there's there's that question with people in my family and even with my 
um, I probably shouldn't get into all of the questions of citizenship, but I'll just say, like, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure about who actually is an American citizen all the time. And I have a very big family, so that's part of it. Um, so, you know, the that those kinds of questions, like the the kind of yeah, the fiction that that like that 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 line there between the U.S. and Mexico is that the U.S. and Mexico themselves are like they're real things and they are, but like there's there's an element of like fiction that starts this all out. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it's it's just astonishing, right? That. Um, citizenship is so regularly a matter of life and death, and yet citizenship can be unknown. People can be unsure if their relative right is, is a citizen or not. It's, a, it's an a extraordinary fact, I think. Uh, I'm going to give the, the, the next question to local bag. Right. I think it's also great that all of these things that can become very real, as Wendy mentioned, um, can also be reverted back into fiction um, if we put our minds to it. But my next uh, question for you is, um, can you describe the general attitude of your community towards um, ICE, Border Patrol, police? Um, what seem, what ideas, um, what ideas of those entities seem to exist in the public consciousness that you grew up in? Um, so, uh, first of all, the Rio Grande Valley, which is what I would refer to as like where I'm from, you know, it's it's a, I think it's got like close to two million people at this point. It, it was always like big in terms of well populated i'll just put it um and you know about 90 percent of the people that live there are they're latina but like they're also probably mostly mexican-american or mexican mm -hmm. um and so you you don't have like one community there you know you have like a lot of different kinds of communities and then it's like i would say that the people i found myself around like you know again i have a very big family um, I don't know how else to refer to it, but like it's, I guess, pretty conservative Mexican family in some ways. And we, I did think of us as like Mexican, even though that's not like accurate, you know, I mean, Mexican American really, but um, that the, the family was like, and okay, there's also, I grew up in like Harlingen, it's a very specific part of the valley. And I can talk about all the differences between the different cities in the valley, mm -hmm. but, um, but anyways, the, um, there was always this like undercurrent for some people, again, like the attitudes about border patrol and, or I should say, you guys are talking a lot about ICE. When I tend to talk about, because um, I just saw on the, the script, when I talk about border uh, enforcement, I just say border enforcement because that includes mm -hmm. ICE, that includes like customs inspectors, it includes border patrol, right. it includes like all the infrastructure there that actually goes into like making that border a real thing and ice tends to like work within the country as well as border patrol but like it's ice is known broadly i think because of how it operates within the country and it's the one that you know that will send agents to go get people in new york or wherever mm -hmm. and like deport them it's also like in charge of you know um incarceration basically uh, but Border Patrol is actually like my, when I grew up, like that was the one that we were always really aware of because it literally polices borders and ICE doesn't do that uh, the way Border Patrol does. Mm -hmm. um, like it's literally on the border. So we would, you'd be walking around and as well as seeing like, you know, uh, whatever city you live in, like the police from that city, you would also see Border Patrol cars and Border Patrol uh, like SUVs. 
Wow. Like everywhere, even like when you go, when I go back now in Harlingen, which is 30 minutes from uh, one of the borders, 45 minutes from another, different, you know, but it's not right mm -hmm. at the border. But when I go home, like you'll see Border Patrol agents around the city. And I remember taking my partner home and he was just like, what the hell? They're up here. I was like, they're everywhere. Like you, you grow up with a sense of like, we call it La Mica. Mm -hmm. And so people have like this sense of, you know, it's like, um, it's not a good feeling people have about La Migosa, but also like, especially increasingly, like starting in the mid nineties, you started to see more and more uh, border patrol agents because it used to be like, when I was in high school in 96, um, I think back then we had uh, border patrol, US uh, border patrol was like 5,000 agents around the country. So what we saw in the Valley was, you know, significant but nothing compared to now where there's like 20,000 or 22,000 you know and but basically by the middle of the odds you already like it was a very different place in terms of that it was a lot harder to get across the border what you could get when you went across the border very different than when you know I was younger so but but what that means so this increase in the number of border patrol agents especially and then like the uh, restructuring of um, CBP and ICE like under DHS as opposed to INS because it used to be under INS and um, Immigration and Naturalization Service and then after 9-11 uh, in 2003 they restructured so that all of this stuff was under DHS. What happened then but it, it started before then but like it definitely took off after that is like a boom in employment. Like it offered all this employment, so a lot of people in the valley could get work, some like some way connected to like border enforcement. Wow. Um, so that that changed the way that I think some people saw it. And you still, it's like I said, it's not like a unified kind of place like that. There's people that bought into that or became part of that more, and there's people that aren't as much part of that, whether it's due to their own citizenship status, people in their family or other things, although I don't want to give the impression that people that work for Border Patrol don't have connections to people that don't have citizenship because they do, yeah. you know, but like they have a much more mixed um, association with it. It's, it's a lot more, the feelings, not to say what's actually happening is complicated, but the feelings are more complicated. So definitely, you know, like if you would think that you would have all of these people that have connections to Mexico, to, you know, mostly to Mexico, but like that, you know, their parents didn't have citizenship. And in my family, I can just talk about my family, it's easy to like kind of give a, a lay of what's going on with a lot of people there. You know, I have a lot of cousins that now work for either ICE or Border Patrol and they, their parents, like my father, you know, actually snuck like one of, one of my cousins, like, you know, he snuck his father across because he didn't have papers, you know, and um, and here he is now working for Border Patrol. You know, other cousins, they're, like both of their parents didn't have citizenship, and now they work for Border Patrol and ICE, you know. Um, so in terms of, like, how people feel about it, like, yeah, they're, I mean, it's employment, and some people are just supportive. I'm not, I don't want to say supportive. They just work in it. Right. Or they feel like it benefits their family somehow. And on the other hand, like people continue to like try to subvert it because they still have people in their family 
that need to. Mm. So there's, I mean, probably if we were to look into corruption and stuff, I'm <laughs> sure, I mean, I know it is. Because in terms of like how drugs get across the border, how people get across the border, like, especially when you're talking about when people talk about like coyotes or smuggling or whatever, whatever, that is because there is somebody on this side who has the capacity to look the other way that does. And it makes sense that they would because they can be paid more by people who want that to work. Yeah. Where, whereas they're going to, you know, whatever money they get from the government, like that's, that can be out, outpaid by somebody else. Mm-hmm. So whatever they do to the border, like it's always going to be porous to some extent. Mm-hmm. And it's just all it does to like make it a, a harder border or more militarized border is put more money into the hands of people who have the capacity to overcome those borders by money. Yeah. You know, like that, it just puts more money into their pockets. So let's maybe follow a little bit the money question, and particularly that tension uh, that you brought up between, you know, on the one hand, you might have a person who not only dislikes La Migra, but would like to see uh, border policing and maybe the, the border itself, but certainly border policing or policing to cease to exist, right? So someone who takes an abolitionist position. And then the tension between that and employment, like what do you do with the argument you, Wendy, you, a person who might be interested in police abolition, uh, what do you do with the argument? But border policing is, you know, a main source of employment. As you mentioned, the, the Rio Grande Valley, uh, its average unemployment is usually about double the national rate. So there's meaningful unemployment there, right? So what do you do with yeah. the argument that says that border policing is a main source of employment here, you know, uh, in a police place with substantial unemployment, substantial poverty. This is a way for people to be employed, to get out of poverty, like, what do you do with that argument when you and your life confront it? Um, the first thing I say is that liberation isn't about jobs okay. at all. You know, like it, it absolutely isn't. Um, and I and I know you love this line from Diane De Prima too. But you know, if what you want is jobs for everyone, and then there's something else she says, you know, but you are still the enemy. You know, and that that makes you an enemy if you you do prioritize these jobs over liberation like to people wanting liberation you are an enemy and that's just all there is to it like in terms of that and then on top of that if we want to get into the nitty-gritty let's be real here like that valley is also one of the cheapest places in the country to live it is true that it is it's very poor and there's you know like the, the substantial unemployment like you said but it also is very cheap like extremely cheap like i think in 2013 there used to be like a a ranking of the cheapest places to live in the United States, and that area was always at the very top, like number one and two. Harlingen, where I grew up, was number one, like in 2013 or something like that. These are very cheap places to live. There's a lot of like long-term residents that, like you know, basically are, are very um, generous with their families, with people around. Um, also, there are other things that people can do there. It's not easy. I'm not saying that it's easy at all. But like the Border Patrol uh, and these government jobs, specifically in border enforcement, they offer not just like enough money to live, they offer enough money to have multiple cars and, and it, it's, it's a different kind of life. It, it's the kind of climbing and class status, um, but that's, that's all that is. It's not because like people are gonna starve. I mean, this, it sounds, I feel nuts saying it, but it's true. Like people aren't gonna starve because they don't work for Border Patrol. You know, um, that's not going to happen. Uh, and honestly, like, I do think that people still, like, you're, 
you have not a lot of great options, but you still have agency in that situation. And um, what it did to my family, what I've seen it do to that community, full of people, like I said, we're, we're not even sure who has status and who doesn't, like the way it has ripped us apart, like I don't think it's worth it, like period. You know, and I do see there are people that I know and I'm lucky enough to know down there who are border abolitionists um, and they continue to like try to do everything they can, you know, to basically act against that border. And they like I remember one of them put out uh, an article one time kind of going through what it's like to be in that situation and like their friend was they needed a job and what they were applying to work at one of those places that basically houses all the migrant children and they were going to be a, like a you know like a guard there basically and um the article goes through how like they just you know were really telling their friend like please don't and the friend um you know was like i need i need a job or whatever but in the end the friend didn't take the job and it was like it's a hard situation but like you've got like look at there's a in terms of like fascism and the kinds of things you can do to survive under fascism, like you still don't want to be a fascist. <laughs> and that is what that is, you know? Fair and enough, that, like, fair I, enough. Like I, I miss my family. I really do, you know? Um, but that is what a lot of them chose to do. I don't have just one or two people from my family working in border enforcement. Over the course of my life, I've had, I've had 10, wow. you know? Wow. It's a lot. Wow. It's a lot. And I don't see them because yeah. I can't. You know, I, I can't, and it's not just that, like what ends up happening in those situations, like, you know, people want to talk about um, patriarchy and paternalism, like that's, that's incarceration, that's, that's all of the, uh, I for, I'm forgetting what they call them, detention facilities for, you know, migrants. And what happens in those places is, you know, systemic and it's just like broad. So. You know, I ended up one of my family members, and I hope it's, I can say pretty much whatever, right? Um, but like one of my family members uh, was at one point uh, fired by ICE, and um, my mom told me that he was fired, and I asked why, and my mom told me that um, he had sex with a detainee. And in my head, I was like, oh my God, because he didn't have sex with that detainee. That's not what happened, you know? and. Um, I mean, that was the end of me being able to hang out. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I never liked it. I never really, I, I didn't see my family a lot in part because I just couldn't stomach this. And it's not like when I would go in there, the pressure to work in border enforcement or something with the government was there from the time I was a teenager. It was something that I had to fight. So that's another thing I would say to people that were talking about, like it's the only form of jobs. Like that's what people told me growing up that I would have to take one of these jobs because that was the practical thing to do. I need money, whatever. I fought really hard to do something else. And that's what I would recommend that people do. Fight really hard to do something else. Thank you. You know, um, but yeah, uh, it's, you know, when I talked to my parents about my cousin that, you know, he got hired again by ICE, by the way. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, when I, I talked to my parents about it, I'm just like, uh, you know, I know that it's, I know that it's not just him and I was like but that's exactly the reason that I'm mad about everyone working here mm. you know like I that it isn't yeah it isn't just him but um oh. 
Yeah. We had to buzz you on that word. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's That's okay. Right. That's all right. Even even KDVS has to, has has the yeah. Lord above us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. That's all right. I feel like, yeah, we don't really. I guess not vet them, but we don't we don't really give the rules usually. So that's on us. But that was um, I don't know. That was that was really that was really heavy, Wendy. Thank you for thank you for sharing all of those very very thoughtful insightful responses. Um, I feel like I wrote the I wrote some of these questions like, <laughs> um, you know, you always want to think of different questions. Like once you hear um, a response, unfortunately, I don't think my brain is working fast enough to process everything that you're saying. So I'm just going to ask the questions that I wrote earlier in the day. Um, oh, sure. But what is like the earliest and or most prominent memory you have with the carceral system or La Migra from your early life that you can remember? I mean, I would say just all the stories that I would hear uh, from my family about their encounters with it. Like I said, you know, my dad snuck my uncle across when mm -hmm. I wasn't even born yet. But, you know, like that, there was always this, this like, um, that presence, that looming presence. I was always aware of it, which is why, like later on in life, when I realized all my family's working for it, like I grew up with this sense of like La Migra bad, mm -hmm. you know, um, it was just, it was ever present. You know, I did have like an uncle that eventually went to gyms on my mom's side that, you know, and again, like they, I, I'm not sure of their citizenship. So I know that they, and they were also migrant workers. So they were constantly having problems in school. And even though like, I can't say incarceration for sure, I'll eventually like, I think the people that they married, like some of them ended up uh, dealing directly with the carceral system mm -hmm. later in life. But, you know, even in school, like early on, like the trouble that they were getting into, it didn't really make sense. I remember growing up with that sense that like my cousins who speak mostly Spanish, who, who have even less money than we did, mm -hmm. that they were, you know, they, they were having such a hard time in school and they were constantly being suspended and they were constantly just getting in trouble. And my, I remember it especially because my dad would actually go and be like an advocate for them um, he was, you know, kind of treated as someone that could get people out of trouble. And in part, why that was is because, you know, even though he grew up along the border um, and his family has been like in that area of like, they really are right at the border in La Jolla. Um, and they, they've been there since the 1800s or something. Mm. Um, but my, my dad also looked very white. Mm. And that was something that people in my family were very aware of. And they would, you know, like people listen to my dad. That like not people, the the people at the schools, which weren't always white, but they were like more, um, you know, just they they were more assimilated, I guess. Mm -hmm. And my father could could basically like have more sway with people like that. Um, and so that I was always very aware that you know my dad was useful <laughs> in that way, and as he as he was aware too. You know, um, so uh, I would say, like, I, I can't say that there's, you know, like, someone got arrested. There was definitely stories throughout my life of, like, you know, one story I have, but this was later, probably when I was a teenager, hearing about, like, a cousin of mine that I didn't really know, but maybe met when I was a child. Um, she died of uh, brain cancer, and my mom was telling us, you know, that, her, like before she died when her mom was crying 
she was like, don't cry. I'm, I'm going to be okay where I'm going. I don't need papers. Oof. That was pretty rough, uh, you know? Yeah, so those kinds of stories would come up every now and then, you know, you just hear, and it, but it typically had to do with like order yeah. or like, you know, um, some kind of uh, disadvantage or thing that you live with because like of your relationship to that border. Uh, thank you for that answer again. These are all hard, hard qu questions, not just in the sense of like conceptually challenging, but mm -hmm. calling up, calling up difficult, difficult things. That happens a lot on this show. I think it's inevitable with our topic, but I really want to thank you for sitting with these questions and being so thoughtful. I'm going to take a little turn now as I lead us into a break. Here at KDVS, people pride themselves on having a very progressive <laughs> sense of music. And so I'm going to shock everyone by telling you right now, the Eagles, that band, are good. <laughs> And not only are the Eagles good, their first good song ever when they were on their second album, when they're sort of pulling themselves, mm -hmm. you know, get, get, getting their sense of what they're like, it's called The Border. So if you ever want to hear the first good Eagles song, it's called <laughs> The Border. And with that, I'm going to let Local Bag take us into a musical break. My guess is, I could be wrong, that it's not going to be The Eagles. But let's find out, Local Bag. <laughs> take it away. Will do. Last year, 165 people in Sacramento County took their own lives. For every one suicide, six people on average are left behind to wonder why. Depression and feeling alone often lead people to crisis. If you or anyone you know has any of these signs, please. Last year, Last year, 165 people in Sacramento County took their own lives. For every one suicide, six people on average are left behind to wonder why. Depression and feeling alone often lead people to crisis. If you or anyone you know has any of these signs, please call Suicide Crisis Line toll free at 1-800-SUICIDE. It could save a life, maybe even yours.
o'clock. It's 520. Happy 520, everyone. Yeah. Uh, when we're speaking with Wendy Trevino, uh, public intellectual, political actor and thinker, poet, uh, UC Davis grad, we're happy to have you for a few more minutes. Thank you for staying with us. I'm going to do what I think is the laziest possible interviewer maneuver, but it's week 10. Cut me some slack. <laughs> I'm going to read you one of your own tweets and ask you and ask you to say more about it. By the way, uh, for those of you listening, if you want to follow Wendy on Twitter, now called X, it's at Prolpo, that's P-R-O-L-P-O. Do so if you're cool. If you're super annoying or a troll <laughs> or something, don't do that. You're just going to get blocked pretty quick, to be honest. <laughs> but if you're cool, um, it's a pretty good Twitter feed to follow, a great Twitter presence. Where we've, a lot of us have been grateful for the thoughtfulness, the incisive and sometimes acerbic uh, engagements <laughs> that we see, we see there. So this is a tweet I'm going to read you from uh, a couple of years back because, you know, I may be lazy, but I, I, I'm like a researcher in my laziness. <laughs> of the 376 officers on the scene of the recent mass shooting in Uvalde, 148 of them, 39%, were U.S. Border Patrol agents. That's a pretty intense fact uh, that, that I picked up in your, in your Twitter feed. Do you want to say a little bit about that, about the role of Border Patrol in doing other kinds of policing that involve them in mass death? Oh, of, of course. Um, like I said, you know, Border Patrol is very active in all of these border areas. Um, so they're going to jump in and do the work of police whenever, whenever called to do so. Um, and that, I mean, like, that's an obvious place where it would happen but like people should remember too that vortex which is like the special the special uh, what is it like special offenses or whatever unit of border patrol um actually was in portland oregon in 2020 like randomly picking up protesters um they have the capacity to basically do anything mm. they want within like 100 miles of any border um so they're i mean like they're everywhere uh, and they, you know, it's, it's a kind of growing thing. They're also not just everywhere here. They're everywhere around the world. Like they're training, I, I forget what year it started, but basically the U.S., it was after 9-11, the U.S. Um, started pushing out all of its border initiatives to where like in order, for the sake of quote, homeland security, it was no longer going to be that like the U.S.-Mexico border is the one that they need to protect only. They have to protect all these borders now um and that means like they send uh border patrol agents to train border patrol in guatemala they send them to train border patrol in papachula just all over the world basically um so i don't know if that's the answer that you're looking for but we're not looking yeah, for border patrol is everywhere. answer we're, we're looking to learn and think about these things and we're happy to have the opportunity to do that with you. you know it sometimes seems to me it's important to think about the particularities of border policing, of, of course, but it sometimes seems to me that, you know, there's just so many different kinds of police forces wherever you are, right? Even any town you're in, right? There's the, the town police, there's the county sheriff, there's going to be, right? There's so many different forces, and it almost seems like the point is just so that 
when anything pops off, there's always going to be 500 people that, you know, 500 different cops from different forces, from, from different assignments that can be called in in a hurry right. to, to mega police a situation, you know, with often just uh, catastrophic results. Right. Very interesting. Um, sometimes even at our own uh, UC Davis, whenever there's a large event. No lie. Um, and a large um, counter, a large <laughs> counter event as well, um, you see... You see San Francisco police, you see UC Berkeley police all pull up to yeah. Davis, California. Um, so I think that really speaks on that. Um, and I believe in the beginning of the episode, Virgil, you talked about um, you know police facing inward into a into a wealthy neighborhood as well as outward, um, making sure that the line between um, between the bourgeois class and the working class and um, rich and poor stays not as porous. Um, and it's just really interesting how now San Diego is the richest, uh, not the richest, sorry, the most expensive city in the United States to live in, or at least in California. Oh. Um, and I just think that it's really interesting uh, as a contrast to like um, you talking about the Rio Grande Valley, um, Wendy, and how it's like the one of, it was at one point, one of the cheapest places to live in the United States. Um, Absolutely. And how police presence um, may or may not be, um, increased along those areas um you know to keep san diego the you know the most expensive city that you can live in um and also you know make sure that the the neighborhoods don't merge and the people in the neighborhoods don't merge what's the deal with san diego oh, yeah. do people just really love like golfing and fighter jets going overhead i have no I'm idea really shocked to hear that too i remember at one point we were like me and my partner were just like we, we want to live there um, just because it's near a border mm -hmm. and <laughs> right but, yeah we were looking at the actual prices I was like oh my god yeah I mean it's it yeah it surpassed San Francisco and Los Angeles which is crazy um, but yeah I'm not I'm not sure really what what the what the reasoning behind that is I'm not an I'm not into economics like that. I don't know the reason. I went to a wedding there once. I ain't trying to go back real soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, as for from what I understand, the valley is still really cheap. Every time mm. I go down there, you know, it is it is a cheap place to live, and right. just everything's very different. Um, honestly, in just terms of like money, I'm very aware when I go to different parts of the country how cheap like food is in comparison mm. to where I live. Yeah. Um, you know, and it and it is like a lot cheaper to live there also just in terms of like housing right. you know i i still remember like growing i mean now the houses like i think they're hitting like a hundred but that's just happening hitting a hundred you know um for like i'm talking about very like uh modest homes mm. there are definitely like bigger houses there but even the bigger houses like you could buy a house the size of a block for what you could get here that's like a two bedroom. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> it's always, just, it's always just shocking. I have, you know, I have a friend from Chillicothe, Ohio, also a poet, um, mm -hmm. who was going back to help out her mom, who's, who's pretty elderly and like selling, a mom, selling her mom's house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking about like putting it on the market and getting like a good deal, selling it for 80,000 bucks. Oh and of course, God. if oh you're living, if you're living in, you know, I know, I know, I know Wendy, you live in San Francisco. Like you hear like, yeah. oh, a house just sold for $80,000. And you're like, in, like in what 19th century novel now? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know exactly. Like I remember showing my partner this like huge. I mean, seriously, the size of a block house in like the wealthiest part of Harlingen where I grew up. Mm. And it was something like six hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Oh my god! Which is less than the houses here. Like I said, like really modest homes in San Francisco that probably need a lot of work. 
that are like nine hundred thousand yeah. dollars and you're not going to get it for nine hundred thousand because somebody's going to outbid that right. you know um but yeah it's it's incredibly cheap in comparison to like the rest of the country and um i mean i i, I guess you know there's not much going on there for one but i mean there is a lot going on there it's just not i don't know you know it, it, i prefer here i'm not gonna lie <laughs> i hear you <laughs> so we've we've kept you on there for a long time we do have sort of one more big ticket question that local bag developed because local bag is our big thinker oh my uh, on, on these <laughs> topics so i'm gonna let you had uh, handle handle the asking right um i guess last 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 question or one of the last questions um if all borders became obsolete right now in this moment what would be your personal response and your family's response if you can even um if you can, if you would like to, you know, create a response for them or on behalf of them, and what would the abolishment of borders mean to you personally? I mean, I would, I would be ecstatic. I would be very, very, very happy. I can't imagine that happening without a lot of other things that would make me happy happening. <laughs> so I, I, I think I would probably just be overjoyed because that, to me, the abolition of those borders would mean the overturning of a lot of things. You know, um, my family, I don't know how they would be. I think some of them would be, um, unfortunately, like border vigilantes. Right. <laughs> and I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yes. That's they all would right. Be <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, like, I don't know because the truth is that because what that borders down, down there, mm. like I, I once, not that long ago, well, actually, I guess it's a while ago now, but I, you know, when I got on Facebook, I, um, I like have all these friends from high school. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people that don't like their high school experiences were less than great or whatever, but, and, and not that I didn't have bad experiences in high school, but like, I actually had a lot of friends and really did well socially mm -hmm. when I was young. And so when I got on Facebook, I had all of these friends that I went to school with, you know, young and they were, they would interact with my page. Then they saw that my politics had gone a certain way, mm. and I saw that their politics had gone a certain mm. way, and we would have fights, especially about border patrol online. And I would let I would let them play out because I actually wanted to, you know, liberal anti-oppression politics, which kind of treats individuals as like, oh, that person's like a dark-skinned Mexican man from the Rio Grande Valley. He is going to have great politics about the border like that that kind of thinking it was less now but i feel like for a while there around me i like a lot of people would act this way and so i actually wanted them to see how wrong they were <laughs> about right. these things you know um but what that border has done and not just the border because what i would say about the valley too is it's a very military place like uh, for instance the the top official for what was happening in Iraq in 2003, he actually was born in the valley where I was born. Mm. And, you know, he, I mean, like, it's terrible what happened there. We, I mean, we're kind of going through, we've had a lot of reminiscing about that kind of stuff recently too. But, you know, he was this, Mex this Mexican American man born and raised in the RGV and became like a top official in the military. Lots of people that I grew up with military the border is military like those are that's just it's a very military place um so i do think that like people in my family people that i grew up with there's some people that are really sold on defending that border 
so you wouldn't ha- just be like, you know, oh, everybody's happy that it's open now. Right. No, you know, that I'm sure there'd be fighting. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to really thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It's been useful, educational. I'm grateful uh, for, you, for you sharing your time. I'm wondering if there's any upcoming projects or events or organizations that you want to give a shout out to or point people in the direction of or really any last things you might want to say. Um, I'm going to be uh, reading at Tamarack in Oakland on the 15th. This uh, is this event for Twip for our magazine that's put out of Oakland. Um, so that should be cool if anyone's interested in going. Uh, free Palestine. Huh. Yeah. Right Unconditionally so. You know, free Palestine. That's the last thing I want to say. So you can see Wendy reading her poetry at Tamarack, which is a social space and restaurant in Oakland. Uh, you can find more about that's on the 15th of December. If you're interested in the poetry, again, you can get her entire whole book for free, go to communeditions.com, click on get it, click on books for purchase, but there's no purchasing. Just scroll through a book, click it, download it. It's yours. Purchasing is a thing of the past. We all remember purchasing. It was cool while it lasted, I guess. Thank you again. We're going to take a musical break and then we're going to be back with our every other week segment, Bad Cop, Good, Good project. project. <laughs> and then we're going to moonwalk out of here. Yep. Thank you so much, Wendy. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for having me.
Doctors Without Borders delivers medical emergency aid to victims of war, armed conflict, natural and man-made disasters, and to others who lack health due to the social or geographical isolation. Doctors Without Borders is a private nonprofit organization which needs your help to bring primary health care to remote, isolated areas where resources and training are limited. For more information about Doctors Without Borders or to volunteer Here's some heartening news for you land lovers. According to the American Dietetic Association, eating certain types of seafood twice a week may prevent heart disease, heart attacks, and cardiac arrest. That's because seafood contains a crucial dietary ingredient, omega-3 fatty acids. This follows years of studies suggesting omega-3s can help with heart issues such as breast cancer, strokes, and depression. Here, omega-3s are found in fish such as sardines, mackerel, and salmon. Here, here, here. Amazing. Lots of pirate-themed messages on KDVS, I've realized recently. Entirely appropriate, pro-pirate, whatever. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, the song we heard before, the messages, was Tu Maestra by Mora y Los Metejoles by their off of their album Suerte. Um, really, really love them. That whole album is so great. Um, if you would like to check it out, um, let's see. But yeah, um, I really, really enjoyed um, having Wendy on the show today. Yeah, that was an awesome interview. They're very insightful, and I'm very excited to uh, read their poetry. Um, I think we're lucky on this show just to know some people in the world uh, who've who've passed our way and and come mm -hmm. and, and and sort of whose paths we've crossed or who, who we've been adjacent to, who are really able to think about these things and contribute, mm -hmm. you know, ideas and thoughtfulness and occasions for reflection. And we're very fortunate in that regard. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we've had some very, very awesome guests come through this space. And yeah, with that, I would like to um, encourage listeners to think about, you know, the relationship between policing on um, on the southern border of the United States and also um, policing on the borders, um, on, the, on the fictional borders um, created by the Israeli occupational forces um, in occupied Palestine. Um, because it, you know, I don't know, when they're, they're all, there are border patrol agents here in the US that are also part of the deadly exchange. Um, deadly exchange meaning um, like the program that the uh, it's like a, yeah, there's a program that the United States um, and Israel take part in, and they, the U.S. and also um, Israel send um, military personnel as well as law enforcement personnel um, to each other's countries to learn different tactics on, um, different tactics on, on policing and brutalization of marginalized populations. And then they, you know, are able to take it back and implement those things in their own, in their own, um, their own areas. The capacity for uh, violent dispossession, mm -hmm. expropriation of land, of saying some people get to be citizens of a country and some people must live in an open air prison. Right. The, the, the capacity for the violence that imposes that in many ways has its sources in the United States and in our lives. And we need to be as thoughtful about that as we can. Absolutely, um, which brings us to our segment, um, our Bad Cop Good Project segment, 
Um, and we want to highlight today's bad cop, which is the UC Irvine administration in its entirety and their recent censoring of Palestinian activists or pro-Palestine activists. Um, we just want to highlight the systemic uh, discrimination against Arab students and those who stand, act, and exist in solidarity with the resistance in Palestine. Um, recently, there has been um, there has been censoring of uh, pro-Palestine activists um, on the UC Irvine campus, um, as well as uh, sending them to, um, I always forget the name, like the Student Judicial Board, um, finding them in, in um, finding them in, uh, why, why can't I think of words? Um, words, words are fake. Words, words are fake, yeah. Um, basically, the Judicial, judicial Board found them uh, in violation of student conduct, uh, certain student conduct rules on, um, yeah, rules, uh, certain, <laughs> certain <laughs> rules of, um, d uh, policies on disruption, um, as well as, as well as other things. So, um, and those, those policies are extremely vague and can be implemented when they want and also found them, well, actually this was, this was a while ago, um, when they held their anti-Zionism week. I forgot which year this was, like, probably early twenty. 10, in early 2010s in that decade, um, you know, finding them in contempt um, when holding their anti-Zionism week, uh, saying that they're inhibiting free speech. And um, this is just a long, uh, a long, um, you know, this isn't new for UCI uh, within the context of UC Irvine and their um, palace, like in their pro-Palestine activists and activism that has existed on campus. Um, this is just a continuation of what has been going on for decades already, because obviously um, Palestinian resistance has existed in the United States um, since the since the beginning of the um, of the Zionist occupation. Um, but yeah, uh, I think Virgil will definitely go into um, more of the history of um, of Palestine activism uh, at UCI and how that's been. Affected. I'll start in. I'll start in the in the present, which is the current charges against students at UC Irvine. And I think one of the reasons you can never remember the name is because it's different on every campus, right? Yeah. Each campus has like a slightly different name for the office that uh, exists to screw over students. <laughs> and w you know what's interesting about the policies they they impose is it pretty consistently is the case that the policies often don't cover the exact behavior that the university wants to censure and discipline. Mm -hmm. And so they just change the policies, sometimes retroactively, and like, oh no, we actually meant. And right. suddenly it turns out that a, a formerly allowed activity, one day you wake up and it's not allowed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, comparisons to 1984 are banal, but it has a little bit of that vibe. And uh, there's been suppression, oppression, persecution of Palestine activists, both Palestinian and otherwise, across the UC mm -hmm. system. Uh, at the UC, UC Irvine this month, there was uh, a teach-in uh, and uh, teach-in for Israel, and there was a question and answer phase. Mm -hmm. And in that phase, a, 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 a Jewish activist on behalf of uh, Students for Justice in Palestine uh, peacefully read a statement during the, during the question and answer phase uh, was yelled at, uh, insulted in the most offensive, like terms so extraordinary that I dare not repeat them on the radio, not just because it would be an FCC bummer, but because it's just, just so harsh, it's not worth repeating. Mm. Spat at yeah. uh, and various other things. And of course, it's this student who gets charged and then a couple other students get charged 
you know, for, for, for disruption and other things. And of course, this has a long history in the many ways, in many ways, the UCs and UC Irvine can take pride in being on the cutting edge of anti-Palestinian repression, uh, famously the episode that you alluded to of the Irvine 11, where uh, 11 Irvine students who disrupted a propaganda speech by the uh, ambassador, uh, the Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren, uh, um, didn't just go up on student judicial charges, but actually on criminal charges and were, you right. know, were dragged out by cops yeah. and, uh, and for you know protesting uh, settler colonial propaganda uh, that was being sponsored by the university. So that tradition, we regret to say, continues and remains an ongoing uh, theme in the bad cop tradition here in the UCs. Right, um, yeah, bad cop, I guess, would also like to highlight a, a second, I guess, bad cop entity of the week, um, Asaf Ferber. Um, professor at UC Irvine of mathematics, question mark? Yes, question um, mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, has called um, pro-Palestine um, students and community members uh, terrorists, amongst other very, very harsh things, and has also called and invited community members um, to, like, to participate in, like, the, uh, in the rape of Palestinian activists. Um, so has called for some very, very drastic and harsh and harsh actions, um, unspeakable actions to um, pro-Palestine activists. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, we also, I think we will go to, we'll, we'll move towards our, um, our good project segment. Should we do that? Let's talk about our good project segment. Yeah. Um, and you know, in some ways we wanna highlight just the Palestinian resistance itself in this regard. It's useful to remember or to recognize that if one of the ways we're thinking about how Israel can exist is via the sheer force of policing, then uh, uh, pal Palestinian liberation struggles right. against Israeli Zionist domination are automatically uh, anti-police struggles. Sorry, I did for I totally forgot that we actually um, we have to broadcast a women women's basketball game, correct? Um, so so I totally forgot about that. Um, my bad, uh, Dyson. But we'll just wrap this up really quick and. Our good project is uh, abolitionist kangaroos from The Guardian. Um, the headline reads, kangaroo punches police officer as it is captured after weekend on the run in Canada. So shout out kangaroos, um, free Palestine, and thank you for listening to No Police Radio here on KDBS 90.3 FM. Wendy Trevina and everyone else, thank you, local bag. Thank you, Virgil. Have a good night. <laughs>